Black Gold, Texas Tea, tapping into oil country with Brian Zinchuk. Every single month, we reserve the first Wednesday of the month, and interestingly, it is the first day of November on a Wednesday. Uh, we sit down with Brian Zinchuk, founder and operator of PipelineOnline.ca, a fantastic online publication that doesn't just do updates on pipelines and oil, does that, but virtually the entire energy beat of Saskatchewan, whether it's uh, elements for batteries like lithium, whether it is uh, the really exciting news, Cameco posting uh, big gains uh, in revenue for the final quarter, uh, projected 2023, big revenue jump, a uh, big profitability, in fact, after losses in recent years. So in the uranium space, there isn't much Brian Zinchuk does not talk about, and we find him at his home base in Estevan, Saskatchewan, this morning. Well, welcome back, my friend. Good to have you here. Good morning, John. Uh, let's start, as we always do with you, uh, the immediate price and the surveillance situation on the price of a barrel of oil. So West Texas Intermediate, as of this morning, is... There it is out here. Now, that's the, the benchmark that everything is based on. It's uh, $82.11 U.S. That's pretty decent. It's been in that range. It was up even to, into the 90s over the last month. Uh, not as high as it was before, but everyone's making money at that range. Western Canadian Select, which is heavy oil, had a, a real bad day earlier this week. It dropped $11 in one day. So it's currently trading at $55.31. So I can't account for why that's happened. Um, the last time we saw a major drop like that, there was a pipeline issue somewhere downstream, and that caused some impact. So I don't know if something like that has come up or what it is, but that's that's a huge drop. That's almost 20% in a day. Uh, and then Brent crude trading yesterday was $87.68. So the global price is, is elevated. Of course, we have a war going on in the Middle East. Uh, it's not enormously high, given that fact that we have a war going on in the Middle East. But Israel is not a uh, producer of oil. They do produce a fair bit of local natural gas, and Egypt is staying out of it. Uh, so we're not seeing big impacts yet. However, if Iran starts firing missiles and things start going that way, all bets are off. And instability often drives oil prices a little bit higher in any event. But you make the point, Iran is such a big producer that if they get engaged in a war, uh, then who knows what lies ahead, right? Well, and Iran has the ability to uh, cut off the Straits of Hormuz, which cuts off the entire Gulf and its ability to export. So, you know, could we see a return of the tanker wars of the 80s? Probably not, because the U.S. Navy will not put up with that. I mean, the last time they tried to get frisky at the U.S. Navy in one day, uh, it was one-day war, the uh, Operation Praying Mantis. The U.S. Navy destroyed half the Iranian fleet. So who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, don't expect that to go well. Okay, just before we move off the actual price, so when the differential on Brent, the world price, West Texas Intermediate, kind of the, the North American price, when the differential to Western Canadian Select is nearly 30 bucks a barrel, what does that do to Saskatchewan oil production? Because we tend to be heavy oil here. Well, yeah, so uh, everything in northwest Saskatchewan is heavy oil, and that is uh, roughly half, give or take, of our uh, production. So it has a huge impact. When you have a $30 differential, uh, this is several years old, but I'm sure it's not too much. 
that is a decline of about 200 to 300 million dollars revenue compared to what you'd be getting if it was West Texas Intermediate. Now, interestingly enough, one of the first things the Trudeau government did was kill the uh, Northern Gateway Pipeline, which would have given heavy oil from the northern Alberta, which Saskatchewan's tied into, would have given it access to the uh, Pacific Rim market, would have been in uh, operation for several years by now. But we never built that pipeline, and TMX still isn't finished, even though it should have been finished a long time ago. And who knows when it's going to be finished? It might be sometime late next year. Uh, you know, that would have uh, definitely alleviate issues like this, and uh, we wouldn't be seeing enormous differentials. Uh, in regards to that, on the pipeline front, uh, big news come out this week is that the uh, Coastal Gas Link, which is a natural gas pipeline, the, a few weeks ago, they took the picture and they did what they called the golden weld, kind of like the golden uh, spike nailed in for the CPR. And it's literally that significant. Uh, they have mechanically completed the pipe going to Kitimat, which, by the way, which is exactly where Northern Gateway was supposed to go. And until that is finished, you just have a bunch of pipes. It's not a pipeline until every single weld is done. And they did that. And that is going to be absolutely game-changing for B.C. and Alberta gas production. As uh, LNG Canada comes online, uh, there's now talk of several different uh, LNG facilities up in that area. Uh, some are tied in with First Nations that are getting some support. And this could be absolutely game-changing for the entire market. Uh, we'll be getting a lot more for natural gas, at least in Western Canada, but also that could increase prices for natural gas here in Saskatchewan because we will be now tied into a global market instead of the isolated North American market. Brian Sinchuk with us, PipelineOnline.ca, his regular monthly stop by. We do the update on oil, natural gas, the energy play. Okay, so the whole story everywhere this week has been Mr. Trudeau's uh, relief of the carbon tax only for Atlantic Canada, only on heating oil, but now the government is saying, well, maybe it's all rural heating oil, of which we have a few people doing that in Saskatchewan, not many percentage. But what is the the play here in terms of how the industry sees this kind of thing uh, working out? Well, so Saskatchewan was fighting the carbon tax before it was cool. I mean, do you remember the 2019 truck convoy to Regina organized by uh you know, some oilmen and farmers around Estevan and Weyburn. Like, this has been a fight going on for a long time. And the things they predicted, you know, it's going to cause prices to go up. Well, it has. And uh, we're talking about affordability crisis everywhere. People can't afford food. People can't afford to eat their own. Well, why do you think that is? The entire purpose of the uh, carbon tax was to make everything that uses any sort of fossil fuel, more expensive until people can't afford to use it anymore, so they use something else, except that there often isn't something else, so they have to pay for it. In Atlantic Canada, which had been exempt of the carbon tax on fuel oil, which is basically winter diesel, uh, all of a sudden they got hit by it, and it's a really good example of the analogy of the proverbial frog in a boiling pot. Well, in Western Canada... You know, we were part of that carbon tax, so it got raised from 20 to 40 to 50 to $65. Whereas in Atlanta, Canada, they went from zero to 65 in a day. Well, so people who are dependent on this, and fuel oil is very expensive. My dad had it on the farm until uh, 
about nine years ago when he just couldn't afford it. It was the option of food or fuel, but he couldn't do both, so he switched to propane. Uh, this is hitting those people with the same decision. Well, food or fuel, we can't do both, especially when the amount we're going to be paying for carbon tax is extraordinarily high. Well, this is where all the chickens are coming home to roost because everything from food prices to inflation on uh, any product that's shipped, heated, or eaten, because we use that, uh, fuel for all those things, they're all going up. And people are starting to say, ah, I don't think so. So Atlanta Canada gave their uh, MPs, which are mostly liberals, they gave them a stern talking to saying, uh, this is a good way for you to get unelected. And they all had conversation as a caucus uh, with the prime minister saying, uh, we're all going to get unelected. And the prime minister said, well, we're just going to put a three-year hold on that. And we're all going to put in heat pumps, which is no one's really getting into the details in the whole heat pump thing. But I read a thing yesterday saying that every heat pump requires a 50-amp circuit. Well, that's a lot of power. That's more than a typical electric car. And that's uh, two-thirds of the way to what an electric pickup truck is going to require. A lot of those houses in Atlantic Canada probably only have 100-amp circuits in the first place. So if they're going to do that, and everyone's switching to uh, heat pumps, will their grid be able to handle that? I mean, even if Muskrat Falls goes online in Newfoundland, they may have the power at the generation side, but they may not have the wires to get it there. Trudeau never mentioned that when he said, we're going to give free heat pumps to everyone. So this is a huge thing here. Uh, Mo, uh, an example I use in my column about this is that for Trudeau, this is uh, saying we're going to pause it for three years on what was up until now the absolute holy uh, plank in their climate change agenda that we're going to pause carbon tax. Well, that was the crack in the dam. And Mo saying we're not going to pay it was removing the finger from that dam. And I think that dam's going to burst. Yep, Brian Zinchuk, I, you describe it well, my friend, and I think uh, for many people, and again, Saskatchewan was opposing the carbon tax long before it became cool to oppose the carbon tax because we saw all of this coming. So once you've made an exception for one region of the country on the crass political calculus, uh, then the fingers come out of the dam. And in many respects, I think this carbon tax thing is finished. Now, It'll only be finished if the government that has brought it in is finished. Someone comes in and repeals pollution pricing uh, approved by the U.N. Uh, Canada can, of course, do as other countries like Australia have done and have our own models. But uh, this will be a significant revision if it happens. So Brian Zinchuk has a number of other stories today. So we look at... Some of the issues, as you move into helium, uh, you look also at the expansion of wind and solar in our power-generating grid. More of that's coming, but is it more efficient, necessarily? Few questions, few answers, here on 650 CKOM and 980 CJME. Midweek 
Wednesday, first day of November. And, of course, when we go to the first Wednesday of the new month, we go to Brian Zinchuk, founder and editor of PipelineOnline.ca, on the phone in Estevan this morning. Uh, Before we move off the climate change file, Brian, uh, the Sask First Act, which was passed in the Saskatchewan legislature, has a mechanism where the provincial government will set up impact panels. They'll study certain issues where they believe uh, if Ottawa is encroaching on provincial jurisdiction. Uh, you've been covering some of this, and it looks like a lot of this is also oriented on the climate change file. Oh, absolutely. So that was passed into law a year ago, and then nothing really came of it. So some people might have wondered, well, what's going on? Well, in the throne speech, the provincial government said that, yeah, we are going to create these panels. We're going to look at the impact, and uh, clean electricity regulations is one of them. I think the carbon tax is another one, is the third one. But it all comes into, you know, can we actually live with what the federal government is giving us here in regards to all these climate change initiatives that basically are going to make it unlivable in Saskatchewan. Uh, you know, I really had my eyes opened when Scott Moe a year ago released the Drawing the Line white paper because, I mean, I write about this stuff every day for 15 years, so you'd think I'd be pretty clued in on all this. But when you add it all up, all these climate change initiatives are going to have enormous impact on transforming our society. And the reality is we don't have practical and affordable uh, alternatives for a lot of these things. So that's where this, uh, these panels are going to start stepping in. And, I mean, we saw Premier Mo say, hey, we're not going to pay. Well, maybe it's going to take some backbone to do this to actually say, uh, you know, we have to be practical about how we're going to live here. So the clean electrical standard is one where Ottawa has decreed 2035, uh, which is just over 10 years away, you cannot generate one watt of electricity in Saskatchewan using any fossil fuel. And then they said, well, you can have natural gas generators as long as you have carbon sequestration at a cost of a billion and a half hooked up to each generator, and you can only use them on emergency days when uh, your power drops. I mean, that almost sounds like something out of Kafka when you look at it. Oh, it's nuts. I mean, let's look at some very practical examples. Fast Power currently has 617 megawatts of wind power and uh, 30 megawatts of grid-scale solar power. So we're talking about expanding that by another 3,000 megawatts in the next, uh, I think it's the no, same time period, by 2035. Okay, well, Alberta has already built 5,500 megawatts of the two of them, uh, most of that being wind. And in recent days, and I've been written about this at least 24 times in the last 24 months, uh, <clears throat> in Alberta, the... Uh, Energy Minister put out a tweet saying, hey, look at our wonderful solar uh, project at Travers, 465 megawatts, biggest in Canada. Isn't that great? And two days later, at noon, the Travers Solar Facility was producing 10.9% output. And then the day after that, the entire solar fleet of Alberta at noon was producing 7.2% of the main plate capacity. And then wind, same thing, was uh, bottomed out there for uh, a day or two of that near flatline uh, wind production for the entire province on the following Wednesday. So we're taking what works. Oh, and by the way, when solar was down to 7.2%, the uh, one remaining coal plant in Alberta was producing eight times what the entire fleet of solar was doing. 
That's and, remarkable. So, so when you say seven percent, is that seven percent of solar's capacity or seven yeah. percent of the entire grid? So at that time, solar capacity was twelve hundred ninety-three. They've since increased it by about uh, another seventy-five or so. They added yet another solar plant. I think they're up to thirty-seven now. Uh, so they're getting ninety-three megawatts out of twelve hundred and ninety-three on that day. Wow. Okay. And, yeah, and wind often gets worse. And so Alberta already has what Saskatchewan is planning to build. And if we rely on that, we will have days where we will be down to, you know, 0.1%. I've recorded that numerous times that happens in Alberta. Output. How do we rely on that? So you're, you, the takeaway for you, and you follow this closely on the daily output, is if you've got a sunny day, you've got a windy day, great. All of this kicks, you know, it's it's a requisite part of the power grid, but it can't be used as base load because it fluctuates. Well, it comes down to this. Electricity for the economy is like breathing. It's great when you're doing it, but when you run out of oxygen, all of a sudden it's a crisis. Well put, Brian Zinchuk. Uh, stories coming up you're working on. What are some of the things you're looking at? Well, so one of the things I reported on recently is that uh, North American Helium, which is Saskatchewan's by far uh, leader in helium, they just commissioned their seventh helium processing plant. That's four in the last year alone. So that's been a tremendous thing. They're just pumping them out, like Khrushchev once said, making missiles like sausages. They're doing the same thing of uh, helium plants. Saskatoon-based Royal Helium just uh, opened up their first uh, plant. Now, that's at near Brooks, Alberta. They're looking at doing one near Climax here. Uh, is in their plans probably for next year. So they're, uh, you know, being a Saskatchewan-based company, they went from being an explorer with no revenue to they will soon have revenue as a producer. Good so thanks. that's a good thing to hear. To watch the helium play. Brian, always great having you by. Thanks so much for what you do, and uh, we'll keep in touch. See you next month, John. Back to the calls. Everything goes here in the hour of the big stories at 877-332-8255 on 650-CKOM and 980-CJME. I'm John Gormley. Good to have you here. Okay, can I say just one more thing about the carbon tax? We could go on and on, and I so often do. A uh, letter to the editor, and I don't read the Western Standard very often, uh, conservative online news magazine, but I, again, look, that's what my life is. My life is compare, contrast, read the right, read the left, go all over the map. Um, and Western Standard uh, often has some good stories. But one of their letters to the editor, written by a very thoughtful Saskatchewan guy named Gerald Heinrichs, a lawyer in Regina, who I've uh, come to know over the years, Heinrichs wrote a great piece on the carbon tax. Let me just share it with you, because he he hits, and he actually, I swiped the uh, 56 hours worth of China's emissions from Gerald's uh, letter, because that's a really good one. It's well-known. Gwyn Morgan, the retired uh, engineer and oil guy, uses that all the time. But here's the letter. Bill Gates has astronomical wealth. He buys anything he wants. In a BBC interview, the billionaire admits he has one of the highest greenhouse gas footprints on the planet. But Gates says he contributes to things like paying for carbon offsets and direct air capture. Therefore, he claims his spending is not part of the problem. 
Gerald Heinrichs writes, that depends on what the problem is. Because if the problem is ignorance of financial pain, then Bill Gates is a huge part of the problem. Here in Canada, 2023 has bought a flood tide of financial hardship. A man in Winnipeg can't afford the gas to see his children who live with his ex in Alberta. Tradespeople with long drives to work get little help from paltry carbon rebates. And the Trudeau government admits 8 million Canadians pay out more in carbon tax than they get back. So these Canadians bear the tax with family cutbacks, deeper debt, and Canadians are learning the government's power to tax is, as the saying goes, the power to destroy. Is all the misery worth it? This is a letter to the editor from uh, Gerald Heinrichs. Is the misery worth it? Retired engineer and oil executive Gwyn Morgan gives one analysis. If we took every one of Canada's gas and diesel-powered vehicles off the road for a full year, the total emissions avoided would offset just 56 hours of China's emissions. Yet Canadians pay and pay because the Trudeau government says, quote, it can't be free to pollute. Meanwhile, Canada's well-to-do live footloose and pain-free because they, like Bill Gates, can carry on the same, paying the carbon tax with a self-contented smile. Well, he just nailed it. And I guess I was joking with Korsky earlier, like a buddy of mine who's a smart guy, he says to me, you know, I'm, I'm looking at all this, that carbon tax was all about like, like hurting people, making you pay more. You couldn't afford stuff. And I said, well, a word I can't use on the radio, Sherlock. I mean, that's what the carbon tax always was. Okay, a couple of Saskatchewan stories. And uh, I was delighted in this morning's Financial Post to see Saskatchewan getting a shout out. But no wonder when you look at this stuff, we've been talking about BHP billet. Sorry, BHP. They don't use the word billetin anymore, but the world's largest mining company. Years ago now, and I can't remember the number of years ago, they optioned Janssen. And the mining rights in Janssen had been held by a professor at the university. She had a company she developed for potash exploration. Everything was bought out. BHP came to look at Janssen. Now, the great Bill Doyle, who was the CEO of Potash Corp. at the time, said, quote, there'll never be a mine at Janssen run by BHP. And Bill, as a career insider in Potash, I think was speaking with some authority because you knew some big player would buy out the mine and either develop it or mothball it, or there'd be a joint venture or something else. BHP didn't get to be the largest mining company on earth by not being diversified, but they do things like iron, copper, they have an oil division. Well, they now decided potash is something they're going to be in the business of. So the announcement yesterday morning, on top of $12 billion already being spent at the BHP Janssen site, $5 billion was for pre-stage one, and that's when... Remember, the original head frame went up. The original work was going on out there. Then 
Seven and a half billion was for stage one, which is right now 32% complete. Stage one will progress. Uh, they'll be delivering potash by the end of 2026. And at that, it will be a big potash mine producing about 4 million, roughly 4.1, 4.2 million tons of potash a year. On top of that, they're going to double it and go up to over 8 million tons a year. With a stage two, they're putting $6.4 billion into. So this is a huge announcement. And uh, the mining world uh, was looking with great interest at this yesterday. And in fact, coincidentally, there was a mining conference on in Saskatoon, mining oil on labor needs. And I'm thinking one of the reasons that got rolled out yesterday was that conference was on. We were chatting with some people from Deloitte who were very involved in that conference. So BHP, extra $6.5 billion. This will be one of the largest mines on Earth at over 8 million tons. Now, many of you inside the industry say, just wait. We have the world's largest producer already, Nutrien, based in Saskatchewan. We also have Mosaic. What will happen to the market when another 8 million tons comes on board? Well, that will be interesting. Uh, Ragnar Udd, who is the president of BHP Americas, uh, came out and was pretty clear. Potash is going to be a key ingredient for the planet as population grows with less arable land. The fact we've got a shaft in place with stage one that's expandable, the fact we've got port capacity, we have permits in place, we have a great team doing excellent work in Saskatchewan, we believe this is the time to push the investment. So that investment already at $12 billion will be another $6.5 billion. So you can imagine what that's going to do for this part of the world. Now, Cameco, the world's dominant uranium producer, which for a decade after the Fukushima meltdown had a very tough time, their shares were up 9% yesterday. And that was on the 2023 financial outlook. Profit in that quarter, $148 million compared to a loss a year ago. Revenue for the quarter, $575 million, up from 389 the year earlier in the same quarter. A consolidated revenue expected this year to be $2.5 billion plus. So Cameco's back. So you've got uranium, you've got potash. So the shout-out in the National Post this morning, or the Financial Post... Alberta, Saskatchewan, Newfoundland, Labrador are best positioned to weather a storm if it's coming. Alberta's economy will lead Canada next year. Oil prices are high. Output will rebound in 2024. Production will be ramped up in coming years. Now, that's said as a fact. Let me just open the door to our climate change scare crowd and the panic over carbon taxes. You can talk about that all you want. The world still needs oil. And Alberta's the number one producer. The number two producer, however, in Canada, Saskatchewan. Uh, one other thing uh, that will help is TMX, the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, will come online later this year. 
So there will be a narrowing of the Alberta and the American prices. The narrowing will likely push some of the Alberta prices higher. So Alberta, Saskatchewan, oil looks good ahead. Saskatchewan, the restart of MacArthur River and Cigar Lake mines for Cameco and the Australian mining giant BHP Group announcing $6.5 billion to build a second stage of Janssen. Saskatchewan will weather any coming storm quite well. So that's the story in this morning's Financial Post. Did you okay, I'm really leery on this poll talk, and a lot of it, I mean, what are polls good for? Nothing. In elections, they show you trend lines. Leger uh, has a poll out this morning, and it's one of these online things, uh, 1,600 Canadians online web survey. Interesting part is it was done just this past Friday to Sunday. So it factors in Mr. Trudeau's carbon exemption for the Atlantic. Where has his support gone as a result of this? Through the floor. Story on that poll next on 650 CKOM and 980 CJME. November, and ah, it's a pretty good-looking day around the province. Suffice it to say, we needn't add what comes the longer you go into November. And we go through it, we live it, that's us. Uh, oh, by the way, thank you to one of you who'd said, uh, remember, on the world's largest potash mine bragging rights, Mosaic took the nameplate back from Nutrien in June-July for the world's biggest potash mine. And yes, that's at Esther Hazy. I remember uh, the big expansion going on at Esther Hazy. So for now, Mosaic's number one, Nutrien's uh, got some large mines. And if, in fact, it's not if anymore, it'll be when uh, Janssen BHP comes on stream. You're looking at 26, then phase two will start a three-year ramp up in 29. So this is still some, and of course, it always takes a long time with big developments like this. Okay, so the Leger poll, and I'm always not that fussy on some of the Leger polls. I, you know, they're done for the media. They're done, they're, a lot of them are done online. But what's neat about this is this is an online poll done just this past Friday to Sunday. So they looped in a bunch of Americans for a whole series of trust-based questions where they compared and contrasted Canadians on institutions we trust, about 1,600, with about 1,000 Americans. But on the political side, they asked the 1,600 Canadians responding a few questions. In terms of who people would vote for, there are two significant factors here. The Liberals have fallen to 26%. Uh, up until now, they've been usually in the high 20s. The Conservatives, who have been in the mid to high 30s, are now at 40%. So it's a 14% gap. 40% Polyev's Conservatives, 26% Trudeau's Liberals. I don't put much stock in this. Again, it shows you trend lines. 
But what was stretching to be a 13-point lead, most of the leads are usually 8 to 10. Uh, at least according to this poll, is now 14. Uh, the NDP is back off 20 to 17. So on this web survey, 63% of people express dissatisfaction at Mr. Trudeau's government. Uh, when people ask who would be the best potential prime minister, and remember, people are pretty skeptical. They don't. They tend to tell you who they don't want, not who they do want. So Polyev, best potential prime minister. 29% of people say that. Now, 19% say Trudeau, 15% say Jagmeet Singh of the NDP, 13% of people say none of the above. So that's what we know on the political polling. But the interesting thing is the liberals now falling to 26%, and this was a poll done after Mr. Trudeau extended that carbon tax holiday to people in the Atlantic. So the trust stuff was interesting. What is the most trusted institution in Canada? And this is good to see. 73% of Canadians trust the police. So the most trusted institution. Uh, Next in for Canada was Elections Canada, 69%. A lot of the Americans didn't share that view on who they trust. Um, Our Supreme Court earned 66%. Americans, only 45% of them trust their Supreme Court. So let's go down the list. Most trusted, the police, 73. Second, Elections Canada, 69. Supreme Court, 66. Uh, Bank of Canada gets 57%. Municipal government, 55%. 53% trust federal public servants. Then you've got the half line. So below half... 49% of Canadians trust the United Nations. 44% of people trust the House of Commons. That compares to 28% of Americans who trust their house. 43% of Canadians trust their provincial governments. And on the low end of the scale, 40% of Canadians trust the media. 37% trust the Senate. 36% trust the Prime Minister's office and 28% trust large corporations. So that is the poll done by Leger out this morning on trust and on the politics. uh, Polyev being 14% ahead, his conservatives over Mr. Trudeau's liberals. I'm Gormley coming up midweek Wednesday. Saskatchewan's smartest radio listener now on 650 CKOM and 980 CJME.